Hello, welcome to the Powerhouse podcast. This is uh, Leah Lechtenberg and myself, Dr. Hugh Wilborn from the Powerhouse. We offer psychological tools, philosophical insights, and emotional knowledge. Everything we teach is useful throughout your life, from building a business to enjoying your relationships. For more invitation, for more invitation, or indeed for more information about us, please go to our website at uh, www.powerhouseclass.com. That's pretty good, eh? I remember okay. you said one and a half weeks ago, let's not talk about COVID anymore. I'm sick of that. Let's not talk. <laughs> so go on. So what does it uncover oh. right now? What kind of... <laughs> I can feel there's some passion. <laughs> oh, frustration. One of, one of both. Well, I mean, ultimately, I don't think the problem is COVID mm -hmm. or even the reaction to COVID. I think the problem is the way that people think and the way they've been taught to think. That the, there are a bunch of assumptions built into our everyday language, everyday discourse, built into even academic discourse. For example? That are not... Sorry? For example? Well, for example, that um, the, the best way to make decisions is to consult the experts, mm -hmm. yeah? But the problem now is that the excessive amount of research and data in universities means that for someone to be an expert in a particular field, they have to be very very expert in actually something that's very very narrow so they there are very few generalists there are very few people who have experience across a broad range of uh for example clinical fields and epidemiology and politics and psychotherapy you mm -hmm. know they just don't do it you know you have the you have the, the therapists or the the public communication specialists, the nudges, you have the clinicians and so on. And it turns out that too many experts leads to poor decision making. And we even already know that. So there was a, there's a book called um, The Wisdom of Crowds by a man called Siriviki. And he cites the research which demonstrates that if you get a, a group of experts together and you ask them to make a decision, they'll do so. If you then add in a couple of non-experts, the quality of the decision-making goes up. Okay, up. What's the reason? Well, I didn't do that experiment and I didn't write, read the, mm -hmm. I didn't write the book. So my, it, I can just guess, but I would suggest that somebody with a broad life experience is used to meeting different types of risks in different environments. And they will ask questions that are not informed by expertise and therefore are likely to be 
grounded in life experience. Furthermore, the problem with expertise is that it generates orthodoxy. I mean, how do you become an expert on something? You study it a lot, yeah? And what you're studying is the work of all the other people. And what, what is it that they're doing? They are creating the field. They study each other's work. And inadvertently, they create an orthodoxy. We all believe this, yeah? For example, we all know that, um, you know, the center of an atom that is a nucleus, it's a solid nucleus, and there are little electrons that whiz around it. We all knew that. That, that's, that was the way that everybody agreed that's what it was. And there was a little bit of, you know, dissent sometimes, but we know that's true, right? And then when people came along and said something else, that was, that was wrong and unorthodox. Yeah. And so real knowledge, real science actually proceeds when the orthodoxy is broken down. But if you have a bunch of experts who are acknowledged as experts in the field, they are necessarily going to tend towards orthodoxy. There'll be a little bit of token disagreement, but essentially they all are swimming in the same direction. I mean, that's how we have this ludicrous notion of follow the science, right? Because you don't have, there are very few real scientists left. What you have are orthodox careerist academic scientists or orthodox careerist commercial scientists. And very frequently, those two streams run together. So, for example, in drug research, you know, drug trials, medical research, the, the funding of these for these tests, which tests the drugs, whether they're safe or not, comes from the pharmaceutical company. So they, they don't really want to fund a test which will undermine either the efficacy or the value of their drugs. And the funding for the department in the university comes from the pharmaceutical company. So over time, you can see that the most important thing that we need to realize about science in the 21st century, and indeed the second half of the 20th century, science is not, I mean, it is notionally the search for truth, right? But above all, you have to understand that nowadays science is a career with all the political and economic pressures that come with a career. So you have to keep on the right side of the people higher up in the hierarchy. So towards whom would you turn to in case you're responsible, you're leader, counselor of a country, you have that problem of COVID is coming and uh, imagine you need to turn towards people who help you to make decisions how to handle this. Where would you go? I would try to talk to people with a lot of clinical experience. So people who are both clinicians and academics or clinicians and epidemiologists. Yeah? And I would try to find plenty of disagreement. Yeah, if I talk to six people and they all give me the same advice, I want to find someone who disagrees. In fact, I want to find several people who disagree. Yeah? And I want to find people who are either qualified academically, that's not so important, but certainly qualified experientially. And I want to 
ideally what I do is I put them together and ask them to disagree and I'd listen in. And I'd say, well, tell me about it. You know, why? Yeah. Then I'd be looking out for really, and this is a key thing I want to write about in my next post. What I'm looking out for are, is evidence that arises from practical experience. And I also want to look for what are the abstractions that people are taking as true or definitive, yeah? And then I want to find, I want to look very carefully for those abstractions, because for me, that's an alarm bell. What would be the you abstraction be, right now? Um, well, I mean, the, for the COVID thing, there's a very large number of them. The first of all is abstracting this single condition, COVID-19, from the entirety of healthcare. Mm -hmm. So taking this one thing and saying this one is more important than all the other stuff. Now, for we, you know, for the best part of the, the time since records have begun and, and since people started living beyond the age of 50, there are, there are four things that kill a lot of people, which is uh, COPD, cancer, diabetes, and uh, ischemic heart disease. Huh? So that they kill the majority of people every year, like way more than COVID ever, ever, ever did. So if we'd just taken one of those and thrown all the money that we threw at COVID at, for example, heart disease, you know, we might have had some much more significant positive results. It would still have been a stupid thing to do because you don't want to just favor one quarter of the problem, but it would certainly have better results than we've had with the response to COVID. So there are many other things. So you might, there are many other abstractions that people have become obsessed by. Back in England, they were obsessed by the R number for a while, which is that essentially if it's below one, then the, the disease is no longer um, ex, uh, expanding. It's it, you know, hitting more people. If it's above one, it's still increasing its penetration of the population. Then we've got what they call cases now. Now, in traditionally, cases meant somebody who was actually sick. You know, if you went to, you, you could have a bug but have no symptoms, you weren't a case, right? But with COVID you are, if you're test positive, even if you have no symptoms, with either the lateral flow or the PCR test, then you're called a case. And they pay really big attention to this case, case numbers, because they claim that it's a predictor of either hospitalizations or death. But it, it isn't actually, if you look carefully over the last 18 months, it doesn't do that. But people imagine that it does, or it kind of does, or it might do, or it's sort of, yeah. So they pay super close attention to one number, one ongoing figure, the case numbers. And then they kind of fudge it a bit to say, you know what, honestly, it really is important. I know there's an exception here and there's an exception there, but it really is important, isn't it? It's really important, this thing. So they kind of become obsessed and attached to this single abstraction. <clears throat> and again, that's, that's a common response. Mm -hmm. no, the, I have again, a thought. I like, yeah, yeah. I would like to have your opinion. Is it like, why does it all happen? Is it, we were talking a lot about uncertainty and stuff. And when I listen to you, it feels like, oh, it sounds like we need some numbers. We need some predictable something 
to make sure we can prevent of dying or mm -hmm. getting sick or why why do we why why is the system working like that at the moment that they use all these numbers and that they well they i mean the 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 positive answer is to say well of course we need the numbers of course we need to have them because this is a dangerous situation this is a dangerous virus it kills people and we need to have all as much information as we can get in order to craft a policy to protect everybody right that's the right thing to do we need to you know make sure people are safe and that seems sensible doesn't it it's actually astonishingly foolish Firstly, you cannot ensure that everybody is safe. You absolutely can't. The world isn't, doesn't work like that. And whatever you put in place to keep people safe will have unintended consequences, causing other people to be unsafe. In this case, cancer patients. So all the lockdowns and the closing down of health facilities or limiting of access to health facilities because of social distancing and lockdowns caused a bunch of people with cancer to be undiagnosed in the early stages. So they're going to die when they would not have done if they'd been diagnosed early. So no, you there isn't a way, there isn't a single thing you can do across society which will keep everyone safe. Secondly, we don't need a policy. We just don't need a policy to deal with COVID-19. We just need to let every doctor use their professional skills to treat their patients. That's what they do with all the other diseases. Now, of course, they're informed by research, a lot of which is incredibly poor quality. They're informed by what's called best practice, which is, again, frequently very, very poor quality research, based on poor quality research. The point about clinical practice this is you're dealing with a real person in a real context. The point about scientific research is you abstract whatever the single thing is that you're looking at from all the complicating, what they call confounding factors. So as you really know what this single thing does. But there is no real situation in which you're looking at the single impact of a single thing. Because we live in the middle of confounding factors. That's where we live, right? So most drugs are actually given to elderly people. Elderly people consume huge numbers of drugs very, you know, simultaneously. They might be on five, six, 16 medications a day. All of those medications are tested individually on young, healthy people. And they're very rarely taken individually by young, healthy people. The vast majority of them are consumed by older people alongside a bunch of other drugs. So the setup of science is a million miles away from the setup of the clinician. So it's really worth paying attention to the clinicians and letting them do their work. Of course, they're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, but they're going to learn from them and do better. The problem is with the government is they make mistakes and they don't learn from them because they don't suffer mm -hmm. the direct consequences. Mm -hmm. So in short, we need those numbers to create policies, but we should not be creating the policies. Mm -hmm. 
we change the direction a bit uh, when I asked you about the abstraction. Um, um, you were talking about the table with people and you want to find people who disagree with the, who disagree and yeah. who are not following any abstraction. Can you get back there? <laughs> I'm not sure. sure. Yeah, okay. So, okay, let's, let's put it another way. Um, I'm, I'm advising a government. That's the, your this is yeah. the situation yeah. you suggest. Right? Yeah. And, and so what I'm trying to, my, my own personal bias is, what is the least we can do? How little can we mm -hmm. do? Ideally, nothing. Okay? Because almost everything that governments do is foolish and wrong and counterproductive. There's a very, very, I mean, now, there are lots of services that we use and need that are very valuable and important, like the fire service, the police service, the, uh, the, the medical service, you know, um, the people who clear the, clean the bins, the people who maintain the traffic lights. These are all vital and very, these are services which we use and we can also see and measure their direct, we don't need to measure their direct impact, we can see it. We can see, you know, is there rubbish on the street or not? Yeah. So these are vital. It's not that we don't need government or, or local government. Of course we do. But at a national level, the ideal, the, 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 the goal of the government, government should be to do as little as possible. And to, to behave in such a way as essentially to promote that. Now, what would that entail? That would mean, how do we, what's the least we can do to help the people who are currently being helped. You know, so that in England, there's a huge uh, part of uh, the government, which is called, you know, social care, social services, where people who have problems, they don't have jobs, they have medical problems, they have problems with the law, they have problems with drugs, they have problems with, uh, you know, polydysfunctional families, right? These, they, they have many, many problems. The standard government approach has been to have a department for everything, a department for looking after children, a department for children who are truanting, a department for mothers at risk, a department for drugs, a department for probation people who people come out of um, prison and so forth. And they don't work together and they all have to fill in forms and they waste enormous amounts of time and they don't work very well because it's all split up. It's all dictated from on high. There's a very wonderful woman called Hilary Cottam who challenged this in England. She wrote a splendid book called Radical Help. And she basically found that the social services were spending 80% of their time in meetings and 20% of their time with their clients. And of the time they spent with their clients, most of it was taken up filling in forms and asking questions. And she said, well, why don't we turn that round? Why don't we have a, a bunch of people and we spend 80% of the time with the clients and only 20% of the time filling in forms. But who do we choose? And she asked the clients to choose. So these dysfunctional families, these mothers who were, you know, fighting with their kids and having problems with their exes and fending off the bailiffs and dealing with all the crap. So, well, who do you want? And those, in the original pilot, there were two women involved. They chose the people to help them. How did they do it? They said, well, so the, the story goes, um, the mother says 
to a social worker. So what would you do if my son kicks off and starts attacking me? And the social worker says, well, you know, obviously I'd, I'd uh, phone for assistance and I'd, uh, you know, keep my distance. So, well, you're no good, fuck off, right? So, and then she asks the policeman, you know, what would you do if my son starts attacking me? He says, well, I'd, I'd probably rugby tackle him, take him down. And she says, then what would you do? He says, well, I don't know. She says, right, you're in, right? He fixes the immediate problem, but he doesn't tell her what to do after that. And to cut a long story short, this was an extraordinarily successful program. Um, it, uh, the people who went into it all ended up in a far better position at a far lower cost than if they'd stayed in the old system. And of course, all the powers that be in the old system resented this, resented it. It was knocking down their little kingdoms of power. And it wasn't based on on you know years of academic research funded by some you know well-known charity, and so and and but she was invited to to Downing Street. I said, I bet I bet I know what happened. And, uh, yeah, they they stole all my my best ideas and then did them badly. So, so yeah, how do you know um, that much about this field? It's like. I, I mean, I know I, you know a lot about so many different fields, but it's quite interesting. Well, I used to, at one point, I worked in the NHS, so I worked with people who had troubles, but I just happened to know, re read this book, and it's just a very good illustration. I also do, used to do market research on behalf of various government departments, um, including the department for whatever it was called, environment and education or something as it was called they keep changing the names of the departments but mm -hmm. we used to go and visit people in um very deprived parts of the uk and talk to them about their life um it was shocking obviously it's shocking and i mean so i i remember talking to a young man in stoke-on-trent so this is a, the central part of england it hundred years ago, it was an industrial powerhouse. Now it's a wasteland of unemployment. And, and this kid was quite shy. He told me that during the week, he basically used to cycle around, go up to factories and knock on the door and ask for a job. And he said, uh, he'd been doing this for months. He said, but I, he said, but they don't give me one. So I must be no good. It was heartbreaking. Um, he wanted to do a some kind of a catch-up type course, you know, because he hadn't studied properly at school, but he was too old now to do the catch-up course. And he was too young to do something else because, you know, policy somewhere said that he had to be either, you know, over 18 or whatever it was, under 18, can't remember. And I talked to him for an hour. He said, I feel a bit better after that. And, um, and, you know, I was there as a researcher. I wasn't there as a therapist or anything else, but um, it was heartbreaking. I remember that's at least 10 years ago. And I remember thinking, what a terrible situation we have that so much business is so big and so alienated. There's nowhere for this kid to slot in at the bottom. He wanted to be a car mechanic. That's what he, he wanted to be a car mechanic. But nowadays to be a car mechanic, you have to have this, whatever it was, HND1 or ABC, 
whatever, a, a, a stupid little certificate saying, you know, the difference between oil and petrol and all this crap. He, and he couldn't, they, the, the employers couldn't take him on without this certificate, even if he was willing to learn. Sick. So how did it turn out? You, you said you did some research for the government, for some department of the government. What was at the end of the day, like, did you have any result or like, uh, was your, your task to fix it or just to, um, to show the status quo? To be honest, I cannot remember the research topic on that particular job. And, you know, often we would find out a great deal more about, in this case, this young man, than was the central research question. So there'd be the, the research brief would have, you know, we need to know about this, 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 this. And in order to get people's trust and get to know them, we would have obviously a broader conversation so that we could tick off those points and get a, a, what, what you'd call a, a natural response. Um, and quite often, if you ask people questions directly, mm -hmm. particularly if they're shy, it's difficult to get a real sense of how they feel and talk. So it's easier to talk around a topic and get people talking, and then they'll tell you a lot more unselfconsciously, and you can un and you can interpret that and understand a great deal about what they're they're saying. But but typically, the government um, would um, ignore findings that they didn't want to hear. I mean, they'd pay a lot of money to get us to go and research things, but they didn't often want to know the truth. It was too painful and uncomfortable for them. Um, I, I mean, there are endless stories about that. But oh, that yeah, so. that makes me feel really sad and angry. We used to like doing um, commercial jobs because it was a break from feeling sad and angry. Because the thing about commercial jobs is it's really clear what people want. They want money, they want profit, and they want to know the correct routes to that. So it's really clear, it's much more straightforward um, than working in the public sector. Um, typically what would happen in the public sector is that a, a, a a minister or the party would have some, make some decision, we're going to do X. And then the civil servants would be told, you have to make X happen. And they would come up with a plan and then they would have a plan to execute that. And then we would research that. And very often, I mean, more often than not, it was clear that what they were planning to do was a bad idea. Although that wasn't what they were asking. They weren't saying, is it the right thing to do? They were saying, how do we persuade people to do it? Or how do we convey this to them? Not how do we change it to make it more useful or suitable? Um, that must be but, frustrating. Yeah, it was really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very occasionally they would listen and pay attention, but that was a, that was a cause for celebration if it ever happened. <laughs> Wow. 
So uh, we left our path again, which is amazing. I like that kind of talk. <laughs> Did we finish that uh, topic about what would you do as a counselor in well, front of this corona situation? Yeah. The theme that runs through all of this mm -hmm. is prioritizing an abstraction above existential experience. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be a bad idea. So back in 2008, there was a financial crash and the governments told us that the, the banks were too big to fail. You know, we couldn't afford to let, you know, these huge AIG or huge American insurance companies go bust because it would just bring down the whole economic system. Now, there's a counterpart to that. I mean, maybe we should have let that happen, but we have other things now which are more dangerous because they are big. They're very big. In fact, they're too big and they are too big to succeed. What does it mean? So, Governments, typically. So the, the European Union, for example, is too big to succeed. In, in, the, in England, the National Health Service, which I think is the biggest employer in Europe by, by numbers, is too big to succeed. It has too many administrators. It is not possible to create policies that are adequate for the entirety of that NHS, like in the United, uh, what's called the European Union, there are no policies that are adequate for all the members of the European Union. It's too big to succeed. Now, it's gonna take a long time because obviously the people in charge don't want to acknowledge that. I mean, there's lots of evidence that it doesn't work, yeah? But, the people in charge are very highly motivated to keep trying to make it work. You know, it's their life. I mean, they believe in it. They've believed in it for years. They've also been very, very well paid. Um, so, but the reality is it's too big to succeed. There is no um, economic union and ever closer union that will adequately address the difficulties, for example, faced by Portugal and Greece, while simultaneously dealing with the Netherlands and Germany. The, econo the economies, the cultures, everything about them are far too difficult, far too different for there to be an adequate union. What's the motivation to be so big? Why, why did that happen? Well, the simple motivation, uh, uh, well, okay, the, the, the EU is basically people who felt that they didn't want another war between France and Germany. You know, they had two in the 20th century and they thought, well, let's not do that again. Yeah, so let's stick them together. So that was a, a, a big part of the EU. Um, but from the world of commerce, there is a, an idea, if you like, an abstraction called the, the economies of scale. If I, if, I, if I buy a hundred things, I can get a good price. But if I buy a thousand things, I can get a better price. So I build bigger and bigger companies so that I have greater and greater economies of scale. Um, at a certain point, this turns out no longer to be true because they become too big to succeed. 
So typically when you have a very big merger, for example, Time Warner and AOL, you destroy value. Most mega corporate mergers ultimately destroy value. But in the short term, they create value and obviously enormous bonuses to the people who are doing those mergers. So the, it's as though everybody in business wants to be a rocket that shoots upwards. And the higher you can shoot, the better you are. And at some point, you're going to run out of fuel and fall down again. But the key is to be on the upward going rocket and bail out before it falls down and jump on another rocket and another one, and another one, and another one. And that's kind of how the executives work. But ultimately, they all crash and burn. One problem I see also, I mean, in the last two years is that so many really like small companies um, couldn't make it. They went bankrupt and so many big companies benefited from this, which also means like, I mean, I experienced myself. So the bigger you are, the more power and financial power you have sometimes most of the time like when i see the big companies here in europe um and that creates this monopolists yeah monopolies and oligarchies mm -hmm. yeah run by well, plutocracy run by a small number of monopolistic companies so obviously facebook amazon google and apple um Uh, they're, they're the famous ones over in the States. Um, and the bigger companies are, I mean, there is, don't get it wrong, they are very successful. It'll take years. It'll be another generation or two before they really come down. Um, and by that time, the, 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 the people who made the money, they'll, they'll have extracted their money and they will become the new um, aristocracy. So, for example, Bill Gates, right? So he built up Microsoft. He's given away billions, but he controls it still. But he is now, he owns more farmland in America than anybody else. So he originally was, you know, the software guy. Sorry, mm -hmm. software and then hardware and goodness knows what. But he's diversified. So his, his wealth is now insulated from whatever happens to the market where he first made it. Um, so we're really returning to, in one level, we're returning to a medieval distribution of wealth. Very small number of hugely wealthy people and a very large number of very poor people. But I also think that, that, that we're worse off for two reasons. One is that we don't have the small businesses They, they're getting killed off by this pandemic and also by, in general, by over-regulation. Again, too many rules. Fine, you can, you know, like if you're a big corporation, you employ 5,000 people, you have a, an HR department of at least 50, right? But if you're a shop and you have two employees and four part-timers, you can't deal with all this crap, okay? So you, you sell up or you go bust. And mm -hmm. that is a... Um, that's a human disaster, yeah? 
it, it's a disaster for human beings. Human beings need their own little kingdom or queendom or whatever you call it. We all need <laughs> our own little patch that we run, mm -hmm. yeah? And when we don't, we lose something very important. And uh, well, we are losing it right now. So that's a big issue. And people lose it for the best of intentions. You know, they think, oh, I'll, you know, I believe this abstraction or it's just easier to order from Amazon. Yeah. So um, yeah, we essentially now we have the worst of socialism and the worst of capitalism simultaneously, which is quite an achievement. So we have the worst of socialism, which is, you know, high level directive uh, policies, um, abstractions, absurd ideas that are considered, you know, ideologically correct and um, forced down upon the world and um, enforced by a ridiculously large number of bureaucrats. So that's the worst of socialism. Too much government, too many bureaucrats, too many ideologies. And we have the worst of capitalism, which is we have these monopolistic, oligarchical, exploitative businesses, which get rid of the best bit of capitalism, which is the small business, and build up the inhuman, uncaring, totally profit-oriented corporations, which, which devastate whole you know, whole towns by discovering, you know, that this factory here would be 4% more efficient if we just close it down and we move it to the other side of the country. So we close it down and devastate a whole town. And that's commonplace in America. Mm -hmm. I, uh, when I check the time, Hugh, um, I see yeah. we're already talking quite a while. At the end, what can I do as a single human being to to make a difference or to just they, you know, when I, when I talk about it, yeah, fine, but what can I really do? Well, I think what we've been talking about today, there are two things you can do. One is if there's a bakery in your street that belongs to Mr. and Mrs. Baker, buy your bread there, not from the supermarket. Generally, just do that, do those little things. Use the supermarket when you have to, but primarily you should, your default should be use a small local business. And then I use the other one if I have to, if I really, really have to. Yeah. Buy your, buy your books in a bookshop rather than online, if you can. If you go online, try not to use Amazon. Just use, there's lots of other people online. Secondly, I would say, look out for abstractions yeah because they're in your mind and mine as well as everywhere else you know every time we take those things for granted we think oh that's terribly important we have to ask ourselves you know well why is it actually is it really cutting through is it the the, 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 the that kind of laser-like glance at the truth or is it just an incredibly narrow misunderstanding of life And when you talk to people with whom you disagree, don't argue, but ask, just say, look, you, you, know, you obviously know more about this than me because you understand what the government's doing and that these vaccines are 
uh, are vital and important. And, and I just read this thing about how you know, a lot of kids are getting myocarditis and dying. C could you explain to me, you know, why that, you know, what the benefits are? You tell me, because I want to hear, I want to know how you understand how good it is. I'm, I'm worried and I want you to reassure me. Mm -hmm. Well, great. <laughs> Thanks, you. I think we're at the end now. Laura today's episode thanks a lot and uh talk to you next week thank you bye you something to add at the end no. no i mean there's always something to add so we just have to wait and do it another time nothing's <laughs> perfect okay thanks a lot bye <laughs>